there's just so many things that we concentrate on about our physicality, our physical elements, but your mind is something that's even more important, I think, and you need to look after that. And I think that's where the shame and the taboo and all these elements come. And I think slowly things are changing. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Another Mother Story podcast. And we are your hosts, Dr. Tina Mystery and Dr. Pooja Patel. We are both psychologists and we're interested in what it means to be a South Asian mother today. This podcast is all about the experiences, the highs and lows of South Asian mothers and women. So join us as we challenge and interweave our beautiful culture into modern day motherhood. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Another Mother Story podcast. I'm Dr. Tina Mystery, clinical psychologist. And I am Pooja Patel, a health psychologist. And today we have with us Angela. Hey, my name's Angela Riddo and I'm a spoken word poet with a debut poetry collection called Honeybee, where I explore topics of trauma, femininity, motherhood, living within the South Asian diaspora with the aim of healing and opening up a discussion to explore taboo topics and difficult topics through the medium of poetry and also in my poetry podcast, Poems from My Heart, which also explores taboos. I'm also a mother of two rainbow children, which I will hope to talk to you about in this podcast. And my roots are Punjabi, so that's a little bit about me. Thanks, Angela. So today's podcast is all about pregnancy loss. Um, and we want to cover the topic around that, especially from the South Asian lens. Um, so so just really, what, what was your experience of, of pregnancy loss? Um, there were two different experiences. One was the medical side of things. And one was the sort of socio-political side of things in terms of living within the diaspora, the South Asian community. So just to explain a little bit, I have two children now, but my experience was I didn't know how to get pregnant in the first place. So I had very, very little knowledge. I had irregular periods. I always knew reproductively it would be difficult for me because I have polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis. So I should have done more research or I should have had access to medical information sooner, or perhaps my family might have, being aware of these conditions, have opened up a dialogue and discussed that with me, but that didn't happen. So I went into pregnancy completely blind, completely unaware, thinking it would be quite easy to get pregnant. But when I tried to get pregnant, it was quite difficult. And I had a miscarriage at nine weeks. And then I fell pregnant um, a few months later, and I had my daughter Ava. And then I thought, okay, that's done now. I've had my small bump in the road. That's not going to happen. We've ironed this issue out. And then I had a miscarriage again, and then again, and then again. So after the fourth miscarriage, it was just extremely crippling. Uh, Mentally, it was traumatizing for me. Um, I mean, there were a lot of things that happened along that journey. And then I had my son. So I've been pregnant six times. um, And I only have two children to show for that. And I'm so grateful and blessed. But that journey was really, really difficult because it was, you know, it was death, it was loss, it was trauma. And I didn't quite know how to deal with that. Um, Medically, there was no support that was given to me from my doctor, my GPs, um, in terms of counseling, in terms of awareness, in terms of workshops, nothing was ever offered. 
I was never referred to a gynecologist until I had to fight for it. Um, also, people around me in the South Asian community didn't quite know how to handle the topic. Um, so there were a lot of different issues that contributed to my experience of what pregnancy loss was like. But essentially, I've had four miscarriages. Wow. Um, thank, thank you for sharing that with us, Angela. Um, I think for those that don't know what endometriosis is, um, often it's diagnosed so so late. Um, it takes about up to seven years before you can receive a diagnosis even. Um, so that must have been incredibly difficult because it's a condition where the tissue similar to the lining of the womb starts to grow in other places where it shouldn't be growing and that can really affect fertility. Um, and that's quite common in the South Asian um, community, actually. Is it one in 10, the statistics, one in 10 women have endometriosis? I think it might be slightly <laughs> higher um, than that. Um, I think there's more updated oh. statistics. But yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely more prevalent in the South Asian um, community compared to other ethnicities. Um, but it's just a shame that it the diagnosis route takes so long, um, you know, because... See, I, I was actually quite lucky because my diagnosis... Sorry, I was quite lucky because my doctor seemed to be really, really good at picking this up. So he picked it up quite early when I would complain of... Um, a lot of issues, uh, a lot of the issues that endometriosis has associated with it. He referred me to uh, get a scan straight away. We did the laparoscopy. They found endometriosis. Uh, it wasn't stage four because there's different four stages, aren't there? So um, I can't remember what stage it was actually, but it was, um, they managed to find the endometriosis and the doctor sort of when she spoke to me, it was like she was speaking to a child um, and she did a bit of a disservice because she failed me in the sense that she didn't describe how it would affect me, how it would affect my fertility, what precautions I might need to take or what I needed to be aware of, how to look after myself, nothing. So I had this, I went in there completely unaware of what was going to happen, walked out of there, didn't know how to look after myself. And when I asked the doctor, what have you found? What happened? And the surgeon, she just said to me, we found endometriosis and we zapped it away. And I thought, this isn't snap, crackle and pop, you know, this is like, what do you mean you zapped it away? What did you find? So I had no knowledge. Um, yeah, this is my body. This is my fertility. This is the start of my motherhood journey. You know, you need to make me aware of what I'm about to what road I'm about to go down. And I think given the fact that I had um, polycystic ovaries as well, there was a massive need for education and awareness. And I think that some doctors don't quite understand or realize, hang on a minute, this person is going to walk out of here. Their family are not going to know how to talk to them about this. There's an element of shame. You know, if you have a laparoscopy, you come out of hospital, you've had keyhole surgery, it's there's this element of shame that oh you know I I had to make a decision should I go to Leicester and stay in my flat where I could heal by myself uh, away from family asking me lots of questions about why did you have a surgery what was this all about and me also not being able to explain why I had the surgery this element of shame that you know she's got a reproductive issue here a fertility issue is she going to be damaged goods and instead what I should have had I think like many people is an open honest discussion, education, support, you know, uh, and I think people around me, had they known what I was going through, 
they would have wanted to support but I guess it's about a lack of awareness as well so I decided instead of staying with my parents I went to my flat where I was completely alone and unsupported to heal in private and that was what was quite sad about my journey to start with because I didn't know how to talk about it myself so I think there was a lack of awareness from my end as well um whereas perhaps a bit I was perhaps not assertive enough gosh what a journey I mean I just think to myself you know how isolating that experience was but it just goes to show actually that we it's perpetuated isn't it that we're given a diagnosis around something that actually from a very young age, when we think about fertility and our sexuality, they, or sexual organs or whatever you want to call them, that actually they're very taboo things, things we don't talk about. It's often chi-chi, shame, you know, all of that stuff. So you are only reacting and responding to your body in the way that you had been taught. And that's all you knew. And you came out... It's funny that you said that because uh, I remember, I've said this before in a poem, but I was slapped for saying the word vagina in Punjabi because I remember being very young and coming home from school and it's the first time I heard the word. I mean, obviously you you hear or you learn about it in science and I think in the Asian culture, they expect you to become doctors and surgeons and go down the STEM route, which is fantastic. It's amazing that we have that support and we have these great people to admire. Um, however, the minute you say the word vagina in your mother tongue, I was slapped for saying the word. And after that, that just sort of taught me that my body isn't my own. You know, my body is to be guarded and kept safe for when I get married. So it will belong to someone else. So my body parts are not my own. My shame is, is my own. And I think that is such an important and powerful message that it's a taboo we need to lift because I think children need to be aware of it. Young women and young boys need to be aware of parts of their body, how to label things correctly to avoid a lot of issues, just to be able to hold open and honest discussions um, to say, look, something's really wrong medically. I think I'm not quite right. Um, and for it not for the conversation to openly be held where people can seek help uh, and not suppress issues that, you know, later on the later on down the road are going to cause massive repercussions for their own fertility uh, or their own sexuality or sanity or experiences of parenthood. I mean, it was having miscarriages was just so, it was so isolating, Tina. I think the word that you used is right, isolating. My whole journey in terms of motherhood, in terms of fertility has been really isolating because when I had the first miscarriage, I really didn't want to tell anybody because I didn't know how to talk about it. And then I did tell people who I love and care about. And because I think a lack of their own awareness, they reacted to it in a way that wasn't helpful. And some people think that they're being really helpful and they're saying something to you to help you move on or find a solution when really all you want is someone to listen to you and to be there for you, hold your hand, cry with you, you know, just to listen and to validate your feelings and not invalidate them. As in a lot of responses I heard were, it's really common, just forget about it, move on you know, focus on the positive. And I think there's an element of toxic positivity where, you know, you can kill someone with positivity and positivity is great. It's great. 
But sometimes to heal, you need to cry. You need to let that darkness, embrace that darkness. You need to live in that space for a little while, just for a little while, just so you can step out of it, I think. And I think that everybody around me was trying so hard because I'm such a happy person anyway. They just didn't know what was going on with me. And I just needed to to heal. And I remember taking two weeks off work and it was the first time I'd taken such a long time off work and they were really supportive. And they said, take as long as you need. And I just remember for two weeks, just crying and mourning. And then I just came to a point where I like, I need to get back to some sense of normality because I can't heal. I don't know how to heal. So I'm going to just throw myself into work. So I never really got over the first miscarriage and I never saw any help. Because I just thought, you know, it's too shameful to seek any help and see a psychologist or psychiatrist. And I almost wish that I had, because when the next three happened, it was such a shock. Um, And I just thought it was a cruel joke that someone should have to experience four losses. And at the same time, look at your daughter thinking, you know, I have done it. I have done it once. You know, it's happened for me. So why is my body not working? I'm getting older. And, you know, there's there's all these elements where people ask you as well. I mean, the, the whole living within the South Asian community was, I mean, I don't live directly in a South Asian community, but obviously I am South Asian and I have contact with friends and family in social occasions and weddings and gatherings. And the first question they would ask, like pretty much as soon as you got married, you know what I'm going to say. It is, when are you getting, when are you getting children? When's it happening? And it's like, you know, it's not like I'm going to pop down Sainsbury's and just bring one home with me. You know, it's not that easy. Um, And it's really invasive questions, right? They're asking about your sex life. And some people were even saying to me, lie on your left and do this and eat that and try this. And it's like, hang on, you know, this is like really strange. You know, you're talking about sex to me. And it was really strange. Like it was open season on anyone to give me any advice that they thought. By the way, advice that's not medically proven. It's not Ayurvedic advice. It's just whatever's worked for them or they think has worked for them or whatever they've heard on the grapevine or they've seen on YouTube. We've all had the videos circle around where rubbish things are being sent to everybody on WhatsApp via YouTube solutions. And it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) You're not, you don't have the medical expertise to give me these opinions. I think you touched something, something around toxic positivity as well. And you said, you know, in order to heal, we've got to be real, right? You've got to actually just really embrace all the emotions that are coming with that journey. Um, You can't heal if you're constantly trying to keep a brave face and and, and be positive the whole time. Um, And so I suppose just just touching back on, on that, how did it affect you? psychologically I mean I know you said that it was extremely traumatic um and how long did that sort of go on for Uh, I'll be honest Pooja I started to hate my body Mm -hmm. I started to blame my body I put on so much weight from overeating compensating trying to find comfort in any way I could I started drinking a lot of alcohol um, more than I would usually, um, anything to numb my feelings, anything to numb the pain, the loss. Um, it was, it was really difficult because 
this body is my vehicle. You know, it's taken me every place I've wanted to go. It's done everything I've wanted it to do. But I was demanding something from it that I was struggling with. And I don't know if there was something deficient in my body. There was a vitamin or mineral or I don't know, something. There was, there, there was actually a medical condition, but I started to hate myself. And I think that came across in many different ways. Like I went through all the dress sizes. And also I think with people, I started to isolate myself further because I felt like people were not understanding where I was going, what I was going through. And they just wanted, life was normal for them. Even for my husband, I think there's only so much they can relate to for husbands. Some people might relate to it more deeply, but I mean, for me, I felt the pregnancy symptoms, you know, I had the morning sickness, I felt this like fuzzy warm glow, like someone had turned the oven on in my stomach. That's how I felt with each of my pregnancies. And I was just like, wow, something's cooking inside. Like, I felt this connection, I imagined a whole life. And suddenly someone's ripped that away from you. Mm-hmm. And it is a huge loss. You know, it's it's not the same People say, yes, but you've not met the person, you know, you've not had that, you've not touched that, you've not held it. But yes, I I had an emotional connection. And I think that loss, you grieve that loss. And I think I was grieving that and also hating my body for not being able to function the way it was biologically created to function. I felt less of a woman. I felt less that I wasn't enough. I wasn't able to my great big Punjabi hips were not doing their job, you know, I I don't know what was going on. And I just thought I have grandparents who've had eight children with no issue. But perhaps I was comparing myself to everybody around me thinking, so and so has put a picture on Facebook of a baby, and I had to close my accounts down after a while, because I just couldn't look, just couldn't look at all these beautiful families blossoming. And me, trying to be happy I mean their happiness does not affect my loss doesn't affect my my happiness if someone has a child it's not going to give or take away from my grief but it was really difficult to keep on turning up to baby showers and and all these other things and trying to put a brave face on going to weddings and trying to participate and not being able to talk because I think in the South Asian community, we're so good at celebrating things. Grief is something that's always been a mystery. It's not really talked about very much. Um, there's not very many coping mechanisms. Even my experiences of going to funerals have been really traumatic. And there's not, it's just been really, really difficult. And I think people tend to brush things under the carpet. Like even my immediate family and friends were not able to help. Um, obviously, they felt my grief. They felt for me. But there was just no one who was able to help me to navigate that or to move past that. And I just wish that I had found like a version of me somewhere who could hold my hand and say, it's going to be okay. You're going to move past this. It happens. You know, if there was a community, if somebody had reached out instead of that shame blocking, we could have just had a great conversation. And I, I wanted to find those women in that community who exist who are silently grieving as well. Um, Some people have fertility issues and they never, ever conceive at all. At least I can say I have two children, but, and you hear these stories, but not who supports them. I sometimes think who supports them, who's been their rock over the years. And you just hear about them and people still ask the questions, you know, when are you getting children? When is it happening? And it's just, it's just really, really, um, I don't know what the right word is actually. It's sad. It's just really sad. You used a really important word, and I think the word was silence. 
that, you know, the community is silent and therefore it silences you as a result. So it's a really tricky consequence that you have to then deal with in terms of how to process what you've gone through. But, you know, what you're talking about was a cumulative effect. And we know that women that go through, you know, kind of loss after loss after loss, it is a cumulative effect. It will have a more profound impact on your psychological well-being. And the fact that you had to go through this by yourself it, it just astounds me and that, you know, your your medical professional team, your GP, whoever was around you at that time, didn't even see the, the dots kind of line up and, and, and kind of put together that this woman has had loss after loss and we're not giving her anything or we're not looking at this. So... For me, I think that that's the sad part, but I know that the rules and regulations have recently changed around that, um, which is great. We're finally seeing some shift within the um, healthcare system to support women who've had numerous pregnancy losses. However, it's not perfect. I know that. I guess, you know, one of the key questions that we want to explore is our South Asian-ness, you know, the brownness, the part of us that makes us who we are. And you know, to hear the stories from women like yourself who have additional elements or burdens to think about around these issues that women do face, but also the impact of actually how our community deals with these issues. And you've touched on them. You talked about the silencing. You talked about the toxic positivity. Um, you talked about the not being able to hold space for these conversations. And those the reasons for those are, are complex. We know that you know our communities have held a lot of trauma from the past from various issues that have happened you know within within our communities through history. I wanted to explore with you the flip side of it, which is around sort of what actually helped? Did anything actually help? Yes. And that's, I think, something incredible that happened uh, over the lockdown for me. Um, it happened in November, so October, sorry. So everybody was going through lockdown, coronavirus was rampant, everyone was feeling down, and lots of women were still having missed miscarriages or, or miscarriages or stillborns. And this is happening, and they're already, they're more isolated. So I remember it was Baby Loss Awareness Month in October, and I decided to share something that I'd written when I was actually pregnant with my son. So this is my sixth miscarriage, uh, sorry, sorry, my sixth pregnancy, and I wasn't sure which way it was going to go. So when I was pregnant at the time to heal, to deal with the trauma, I write my feelings. So I write poetry and I wrote this poem about my experiences and what I'd been going through. And I just put it aside and it was a private thing, a reflective process for me to deal with my feelings. And looking at that journey, I, I can't even read the poem now because I cry every time I read it or think about it. But in October, I thought, okay, it's Baby Loss Awareness Month. There needs to be some form of, somebody needs to do something about this. And instead of looking outwards, if I have experienced this, maybe I should do something. And I said to my husband, and I spoke to him at length about this, and I said, look, I've written this poem. I'd really like to share it with the community on Facebook, just my friends, just our extended friends and family. 
in case there's somebody who needs to hear this, even one person, it might help them. And we spoke so much about it and said, you know, people might judge you. People, you know, my husband said, are you sure about this? And he's French. So he just wanted to protect me and say, people might think that you're in a really dark place. Are you sure you're okay with that? You know, you, you know how your community is. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to start with, I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life, by the way. So I'm just going to start there and I'm happy but this is for those people who might not be in the best place in their life. And I shared the poem in the end and lots and lots of people started messaging me and sharing words of encouragement, sharing their miscarriage stories. Some people didn't know how to support people who had had miscarriages, but me documenting in different stanzas each of my experiences through the pregnancy, the social trauma, the stigma, the medical issues, uh, and what my experiences had been, uh, that seemed to help open up a dialogue. And since then, I've just not stopped. It gave me it kind of lit a flame inside me. And I thought, well, if I have done something to help these people, perhaps there's other things that are inside me that I can just put out there, like endometriosis and <laughs> childhood sexual abuse and lots of other topics that I talk about that are really taboo, heavy topics. Um, and I thought, well, maybe I should talk about motherhood and maybe I should talk about these things because I'm in a safe place in my life where I've got people around me who love me, who support me. I have a wonderful family. And my dad even heard my poem because I recorded it on a podcast as well, uh, uh, being a spoken word artist. And my dad heard it and he said, I didn't know that this was your experience. And I didn't know that you'd actually had this many miscarriages. And he just said, is this available for everyone to hear? And I said, yes, dad, you know, everybody who can listen to Spotify or Apple Podcasts can listen to this. And he just said, well done. That's fantastic. He said, we need more people like you. And that was all the encouragement I needed. <laughs> so it was amazing because this is a Punjabi man who doesn't always talk about his feelings telling me it's so common. And this is a man saying to me, it's very common. And he said, Andrew Putter, you've done something fantastic. He said, this is going to really help other people. And I said, Dad, are you not embarrassed about what I've said? And he said, no, because this is natural. This is nature. You know, this is what we should be talking about. And I think sometimes we think that there's a massive cloud of judgment and shame. And I think at the heart of it, there's not. Sometimes I think there are voices where you least expect them. Like my dad you know, um, so my mom is telling me, forget about it, move on, focus on the positive. My dad is saying, wonderful, fantastic, you're helping other people. So it was like everything was upside down and reversed. I didn't expect that at all. And that was all the motivation I needed and all the encouragement I needed. And I didn't stop and I haven't stopped since then. And I talk about things to help other people. And I think other things that helped as well was having, um, friends around me like my NCT friends who were of different socioeconomic backgrounds and none of them were South Asian so they all had different perspectives I think they really helped to further the discussion and I almost feel like we need like an NCT South Asian community of mothers that can get together because it's a different mothering experience it's, it, there's different issues around it but I wish that there were more books that I had read perhaps I didn't research enough but I think having people around you to encourage you 
to say, you know, it's okay. It's it's a topic that might be shameful, but you're doing it and you're talking about it. And that is really, really encouraging and well done. I think having people around me, just a few people who said that, who made me feel like it was okay to talk about miscarriage, that really, really helped, I think. So that was that was really validating and that was really encouraging. So I think the more we can do that for women, the more we can listen to them without judgment and the more we can say, actually, you know, there's no shame in seeking medical help. It's normal. If a part of your body breaks, you know, you're obviously going to go to the hospital. You're going to go and seek medical help. You have, we have like a mini pharmacy in our house and we have all these things that we know about Ayurvedic medicine. And there's just so many things that we concentrate on about our physicality, our physical elements. But your mind is something that's even more important, I think. And you need to look after that. And I think that's where the shame and the taboo and all these elements come. And I think slowly things are changing because our generation seems to be having more discussions and we're more empowered. And I think it's also partly because of some of the initiatives that I've seen, like Another Mother's Story. I just think that's fantastic. Like it's changed so much of how I see things. It's connected me with so many other mothers and listening to their stories as well has been so, it's just been so it's so, so amazing. People who probably wouldn't openly share their struggles and heartaches, they've done that in our, um, another mother workshops. And that's been really fantastic for me. I think um, I'll just jump in there. Um, I think what everything you said, uh, you could see me just nodding away. Um, what you said about your father almost got me really emotional as well. Um, and I think the, the issue is, is that we're not represented in mainstream media. And so therefore, we don't know where to go to get support because no one looks like us. No one has the same experiences as us. And I think slowly, slowly, very slowly, but it is happening that is starting to change. We're seeing a lot more um, initiatives, like you said, um, emerging. And I think emerging over lockdown, I think as well, a lot of things have kind of um, sprung up on us um, which is amazing so yeah I think I think we are slowly shifting into that direction where like you said Angela we're that questioning generation aren't we um, we want to know why why aren't we talking about these things and I think that perhaps generations ago people were and that slowly fizzled out um, and and sort of you know our parents generation almost that surviving generation um, have 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 pre- almost protected us from these conversations um and now we're kind of going back on that and and exploring them a lot more which is brilliant to see I think um but yeah I think there's this lack of representation um in in writing as well um in literature in research in media in all all those avenues so I think it's about time we kind of make our stamp um, so that women do know where to go if they do need support and, and what to ask when the right questions to ask when they're at their surgery or, you know, talking to a clinician um, if they are experiencing certain things. So, yeah, um, yeah. I agree with you. I think there's a lack of representation. Um, I see a lot of celebrities nowadays who I massively admire, like Jamila Jamil, who's an activist, mm. And she's just fantastic. And I see lots of people openly talking about things. And that's wonderful. And I think there's more and more people out there slowly coming coming out. And you see more people who look like us. 
But I think in literature particularly, there's still a massive disconnect. Mm -hmm. There's not very much literature about motherhood. There's nothing about motherhood from a South Asian lens. And it's crazy because the South Asian community is huge. It's ginormous, you know. Our footprint on the globe is massive. And I just think motherhood is so important. Why don't we talk about this? And I think it's like recipes are passed down verbally from one generation to another generation. Customs and traditions are passed down verbally. But there is something powerful about putting pen to paper and putting that out there in a form that it doesn't get lost and that information is there so that it's not just you need to do this. It's the why that we don't want to lose, right? We don't want to lose that message of why do we need to do that? Because the next generation after us will question every single thing as well. And if we don't have those whys, they're going to be lost on that generation. So we can still ask our parents, you know, why do you have shila? What does shila mean? You know, the the 40 day period um, where you heal and look after your body. And there's just lots of customs and beautiful traditions that I wouldn't want to lose. And I think when I was pregnant, the book that I was told to buy was written from an American perspective. It, It was what to expect when you're expecting. And it was purely about um, the American way of raising children. And I'm pretty sure it's like a Bible on pregnancy that everybody has. I don't necessarily agree with all the things that are in there. There's a lot about breastfeeding and there's a teeny tiny little page about miscarriage and stillborn. You know, I needed more on that. (laughs) But I mean, there's not very much about postpartum either. Um, So there's a lot that we in the South Asian community do and think about postpartum. And I think that's something that I'd like Mm. to see more of. And I would also like to see more about getting pregnant, that journey of trying to conceive from a South Asian perspective as well. There's a lot of herbs and our bodies are different. Our bodies are, you know, biologically, we don't absorb the same vitamins and minerals in the same way as my um, Caucasian counterparts, for example, like my husband would absorb more vitamin D than I would. And a vitamin D deficiency, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the doctors, it contributes massively to fertility. And I didn't know that, right? A lack of vitamin D. Is that correct? Or am I... You're asking the wrong people. We're head doctors, mind <laughs> doctors, so not ge- not okay. general practitioners. But there, if, I, if somebody could help us out, then yeah, we'd love to uh, get some feedback on that. Yeah. But you're right. That of course there are you know differences in terms of how we absorb certain things, and 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 and, and you know that's okay. You know we need things tailored according to us. You've you've raised a really valid point. And it's not just kind of biology, but it's also cultural as well. Like you said, it's, it's um, what's the word I'm looking for? Honoring our heritage, honoring our culture, honoring our rituals that matter to us because they came from a place where, you know, there was a reason why there was, you know, some sort of science behind it, maybe not evidence-based, but they had thought about this. Um, and then having something like, you know, what to expect when you're expecting plonked in front of you, there's a huge mismatch between how you perceive and experience your pregnancy and postpartum compared to how it actually is. You know, like for many of us, we have to do certain rituals, we have to drink and eat certain foods. There's various kind of customs and all of that. So yes, you're right that things do need to change. We do need to record and um document yeah absolutely as you know myself and tina talk at length about 
traditions, customs and, and the why, the reasoning behind them. And they've come from a place of to allow the mother to heal physically and emotionally. Yet we live in different part of the world now and we've got different um, interactions and, and, and different things going on compared to when these customs and traditions were probably originated from. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a topic of discussion for another time, but it's it's really it's a really fascinating one. And we come from a collective culture. Everything we did was literally the village. The village helped you heal. Yeah. The village helped you get married. Yeah. The village helped contribute financially, emotionally, socially to everything. Really, uh, this term it takes a village to raise a child. It was probably created in India, <laughs> but I I just think that we went from a collective society right the way across the globe to an individualistic society. And I think that part of that collectivism was lost. And when we have a child, I feel like everybody comes rushing in. The world wants to celebrate your bundle of joy. They want to hold your child. They want to take pictures. They want to buy every single thing for you. And somehow that's lovely. But the bit where you really, really need help is the bit before that, the bit where you don't know what fertility is, you don't know how to get pregnant, you don't know how to look after your body, you don't, that journey when you are pregnant, and also that journey postpartum where you might be depressed or struggling or you need that community because motherhood, I feel like motherhood starts so much earlier, like it starts right from a girl when a girl is menstruating those conversations need to be normalized and happen years and years and years earlier so that when the time comes, we don't feel alone and we don't feel isolated and we're in a much stronger place to be independent, to be empowered and to help ourselves. Absolutely. All valid points. I think that this is exactly what we're hoping to create a conversation around. And yeah, I am 100% with you with regards to getting that conversation in early as a mother of two daughters. So I really resonate with that. Um, this has been such a enlightening conversation because this is probably one of those topics that leaves us with a very heavy heart because there are probably people who will be listening to this, who will be resonating with the issues that you have raised today. And you know, is there something that you would like to say to anybody who may be experiencing um, any of these issues that you raised today? Yeah, can I can I make one last point actually? Go and for I'll it. Yeah. Your question. I think I think the role of men is so important, mm. and I think the role of men and boys is incredibly important because they. My husband is my rock. And I think that my father somehow is my rock as well, because he supported me in, his, in, in a surprising way along my journey. And I think that men have such an important role to play right the way from when they're boys. If you have a sister, your sister's menstruating, you might be aware of some of the symptoms that she might not be, she might not want to tell her parents about. It's their role to be aware of these because they will become fathers they will become husbands they will be mm -hmm. they you know they will need to have this knowledge as well so it's not just the ownership is not on women and i think that when women talk about menstruation fertility etc it's equally important to teach our boys these things as well so i have a son and i'm going to make sure that he's going to be the type of boy that will look after his wife if he chooses to have a wife um 
he's going to be the kind of person who she can lean on, who's going to, he's going to be that person's rock because he's going to be aware of these issues so that he can best support her. Because I think that journey starts a lot, lot sooner. So I think that's really important to educate our boys and raised feminists, raised feminist sons who are aware and well-rounded and don't perpetuate that element of shame. Like, I'm not going to go to the delivery room with you. I know that's changed now, but I think my husband held my hand right the way through uh, both pregnancies. And I think that support, you know, it's it needs to be there for women because often they are alone in that journey as well. But I think what message would I give to someone who's going through a similar experience? I'd say yes, they say that pregnancy and mis- they say miscarriages are one in four, but I feel like that statistic is a lot higher, especially for me. Um, I think that you're not alone. There is no shame in being one in four. There's no shame in grieving. If you need time alone, you take that time alone. If you need to grieve and go to your dark place, do that. Tell people what you need. Don't be ashamed of your feelings. Don't put on a face. You know, if you need to be angry, you be angry. You tell people what it is that you need from them because if you close off from the people that you love, they can't help you. And I think reach out, find your tribe, find your community. There are people out there that are exactly like you. I'm one of them. If you need to talk to someone, reach out, get medical help. It's something I really regret not doing because I think it could have helped in my healing process much sooner. But instead, my healing came through creative processes. So if, like me, you're someone who writes poetry, sings, does things creatively, do that. Find something to help you get a release. Don't eat lots of food and drink alcohol like what I did. That's not the answer. But, you know, I think that just find find your tribe and don't be afraid and don't be ashamed. And, and once you've moved past your healing process, pay it back you know, help somebody else out there, make sure you find somebody else who's going through that, pay that back. Don't let your healing process stop with you. Tell the other person what your journey is. Don't keep your story a secret because it's not a shameful thing. Tell somebody else because somebody else will need to hear that and they will look at you like you're their hero. And you might not think it's a big deal today, but somebody else will be like, she moved past it. She got through it. And I'm going to use that as inspiration. And I think that's that's my message. Love yourself and let yourself heal. Oh, we, yeah, we've got thumbs up from Bridget. This is wonderful, really wonderful. Angela, thank you so much for your kind words of wisdom, your time, you know, your energy, everything that you put out there is is beautiful and wonderful and deep and thoughtful and so insightful and you know, I hope it continues to support and inspire women, families, husbands, partners, boyfriends, whatever they are, that they they learn and we continue to grow and reflect. So thank you so much. Um, Buja, have you got anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you as well, Angela. I know we have been talking to you over the last however many months it is. Um, but to actually be sitting here and having a conversation about this specific topic, um, it's so, I mean, obviously we work in this kind of sector environment, so we're aware of it, but I think there's something about hearing real stories, um, and something you just said about, you know, share your story and then support the next woman. And that's, that's what a tribe is, isn't it? That's what a village is. 
Um, so I think that's really important. So thank you again um, for joining us. And yeah. <laughs> Angela, where could people find you if they want to learn about you and your work? Okay, so I have a website, angelarido.com. Uh, that's A-N-G-E-L-A-R-I-D-E-A-U.com. You can find me on Facebook. You could find me on Instagram. I am Poems From My Heart 1. And also, I, I will make sure my social details are left with Tina and Fuja so you could follow me. But yes, please do check out my book, Honeybee, which is available everywhere. Um, also, all the proceeds of the book go to Tommy's charity, which researches and supports baby loss and find out why baby loss, premature birth and stillbirths, stillbirths happen. And they do a lot of activism as well. So please do support that because it's a, it's a cause that's close to my heart, as you can tell from this podcast. But yes, thank you so much for listening to me. And thank you so much, guys, for having me on your podcast. And just to add on that, um, the poetry book is incredible. Um, I finished it in one day. So <laughs> please do check that out. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Another Mother's Story podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please drop us a review and don't forget to subscribe. We appreciate any love from you on our social media channels. Find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. All links and ways to contact us can be found in the show notes. Oh, and don't forget to sign up to our newsletter where we will give you exclusive access to our events and news.